In the Bible, in both the Old and New Testament, there are many images that are advanced to describe the relationship between God and his people. God is variously described as a king, a ruler, a harvester, a landlord, a shepherd, and a fisherman, and many other like images, all designed to illustrate God's mastery over us. But one image predominates. One image encapsulates and subsumes all others. The image is seen here in the first reading from Isaiah. God calls his people into a spousal relationship with him. For the Lord delights in you and makes your land his spouse. As a young man marries a virgin, your builder shall marry you. And as a bridegroom rejoices in his bride, so shall your God rejoice in you. God uses the spousal image to illustrate his relationship to his people because marriage is the total self-gift of each spouse for the other. In the book of Jeremiah, God says, You shall be my people, and I shall be your God. Just as a man says to a woman, You shall be my wife, and I shall be your husband, and vice versa. It's a covenant relationship, permanent, exclusive, faithful and loving. Nuptiality is not at heart a relationship of ruler and ruled, of lawgiver and follower, or even parent and child. Yes, on the level of the individual believer, we call God our Father. But the people of Israel as a whole in the, New, in the Old Testament, and now the Church of Christ in the New Covenant, live in a spousal relationship to the Lord. As St. Paul says to the Ephesians, for no one hates his own flesh, but rather nourishes and cherishes it, even as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. And thus the church guards and promotes the institution of marriage, not merely because it recognizes the fundamental role that marriage plays in society, but also because through it, through the tangible reality of marriage, we see the very image of God's relationship to us. Marriage is no mere human institution. In other words, something created and governed merely by human law. It is rather, as the compendium of the church says, an institution that does not depend on man, but on God. For God himself is the author of marriage and has endowed it with various benefits and purposes. When marriage is disregarded and damaged in society and manipulated according to arbitrary human whim, as is becoming increasingly common today, our sense of God's love for us and for the church is seriously diminished. Without the image of earthly marriage as our foundation, we struggle to align ourselves with the divine reality of the communion of saints in heaven that we are destined for. In the early centuries after Christ, Christianity displaced the Greco-Roman practice of polytheism. Intellectual historians, even those who are not necessarily Christian believers, credit the spread of Christian monotheism with civilizing and enlightening the West, and ultimately the world. Yet it would be wrong to assume, as many do, that primitive peoples were always polytheistic. Prior to the 1970s, anthropologists were able to study some of the most pristinely primitive hunter-gatherer tribes that still existed then 
in remote parts of Africa and Asia and Australia and South America before they were touched by modern culture and technology. And these anthropologists found that, in fact, the religious beliefs of these supposedly primitive tribes were generally monotheistic. Polytheistic worship, by contrast, seems to be a symptom of more advanced agricultural and metalworking cultures, wherein the religious instinct to worship God was corrupted into a system of political and social control involving a menu of, di of deities. The same, too, with marriage. In these same tribal cultures, anthropologists generally found a commitment to the ideal of marriage and monogamy, a husband and wife committing themselves to each other for life. Polygamy and the various other corruptions of monogamy again seem to have been a development of later, more advanced societies in which the institution of marriage was distorted to serve various political and economic purposes. This shows that mankind's understanding of fidelity in marriage is uniquely allied to our understanding of there being one God. When we lose the ideal of marriage, we quickly lose faith in God. Or vice versa, it doesn't really matter. Either way, we lose sight of God's primordial revelation to us in nature. That's why Christ chose to sanctify the age-old institution of marriage as a sign of the new covenant by the miracle at the wedding feast. It's meant to show us that life in Christ is meant to be like that wedding feast where people celebrated with joy symbolized by the fine wine that Christ provided. Marriage brings that joy into our lives, not just to the people who constitute the marriage, but to all who see in it the joys of love and commitment and security. Gaudium et Spes, the pastoral constitution of the Second Vatican Council on the church and the modern world, put it this way, the well-being of the individual and of the human and Christian society is intimately linked with a healthy condition of marriage and family. Conjugal love is a microcosm of God's love to the church. The fruit of conjugal love and the gift of children allows men and women to even more fully experience the depth of God's love for us. Again, as the church teaches in the compendium, Human fatherhood and motherhood contain a likeness to God, which is the basis of the family, as a community of human life, as a community of persons united in enduring love. As I said before, anything that tears at the institution of marriage tears at our relationship to God. And in a similar way, anything that tears at the relationship of a parent to a child undermines our sense of each other as beings formed in the image and likeness of God. Thus, even aside from the enormous human injustice that abortion constitutes, abortion wounds our very dignity as sons and daughters of the Most High. I hope then that as many of us as possible will be participating in the March for Life this Friday, and that all of us will be marking this week especially with fasting and prayer in both silent and public witness to the tragedy of abortion. Our witness to the sanctity of all human life, and there are threats to the sanctity of human life beyond abortion in our country, is not merely a political idea or a social teaching of the church. For us as Christians, abortion is an existential threat to the very idea that God creates all persons, no matter who they are, in his own image. The church teaches, again quoting from the compendium, 
Procreation sets in motion love and solidarity between the generations upon which a just society is founded. When we as a nation accept the lie of abortion and that certain lives, of the, whether the unborn or other lives that we might see as undesirable, difficult, or inconvenient, are not worthy of our protection, then we, like the Israelites of the exile period, deserve to be called forsaken and our land desolate. Yet if we resolve today to cleanse our nation of the sin of abortion and other attacks on the dignity of human life, we can look forward to that day when we will live out the words of Isaiah, nation shall behold your vindication and all the kings your glory. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit.